Earlier this summer, <clears throat> my family got to take a road trip, and one of our stops was in the Black Hills of South Dakota in Custer State Park. It's absolutely gorgeous. We also got to see the Crazy Horse Memorial and Mount Rushmore. If you have not been to these uh, areas, I highly recommend trying to make a trip there someday. The landscape was stunning and Crazy Horse and Mount Rushmore mesmerizing. If you have seen the movie National Treasure 2, you might know that part of that story takes place in the Black Hills. And as we hiked around Sylvan Lake and around Rushmore, there were multiple jokes among us trying to find that secret passageway to find the gold. We did not find any, though. Unfortunately, I guess that's why they call them secret. I'm not sure about you, but I, I really love a treasure hunting story. Whether it's fictional or not, I like to listen or read or, or, or watch the adventurers seeking and, and trying to interpret all the clues to, in their quest to find riches and historical finds. For me, I actually enjoy the storyline of the hunt as much as a climactic ending of finding the gold. The relational dynamics interplaying between characters fascinates me. In a fictional story, you will always find an antagonist who is trying to steal the treasure from the one who is accurately piecing together all the clues. It's not so different in nonfiction stories. Why the fascination with treasure hunts? Well, the simple answer I would give is who doesn't want more money? Who doesn't want more power? Who doesn't want to be famous? Now, there may be some of you very godly people in the room who are saying, well, not me. But if you pay attention, this is a common idea and, and thought process in many in the world. And, and quite frankly, I haven't met anybody yet. I haven't met anybody yet who does not really want to be in control, at least at the, in the core of their flesh. See, that desire uh, for control in our flesh goes back to the garden, right? Adam and Eve wanted to be God. They wanted to know what he knows and be as powerful as he is. And thus, we still continue battle for the will of the flesh. The flesh desires what it wants, often overlooking what it desperately needs. And if we, if we give in to that selfish desire, it's very quick to spiral down and down and down, craving more and more, just like the antagonistic treasure hunter who can't get enough. In our current series, The Songs of Wonder, The Songs of the Sons of Korah, we come today to Psalm 49. In this song, we find the author in the middle of wrestling with others who are in that quest for dominance and power. And to get started, our psalmist wants to make sure the audience is paying attention. If you will, turn with me to Psalm 49. You'll find the Psalms between Job and Proverbs, and we're going to be in the 49th. And it begins with this. For the choir director, a psalm of the sons of Korah. Hear this, all you peoples. Listen, all who inhabit the world, both low and high, rich and poor together. Now, I would imagine, I would imagine that, that every one of you has tuned out a message before. Unless you're a busybody in gossip, I guess that most of you have ignored statements that you deem not applying to you and not worthy of your time. Hear this, all you peoples, listen, all who inhabit the world, both low and high, rich and poor, together. This message is for all people. No one is excluded from listening to this wisdom. Yes, that even includes you if a few moments ago you're like, well, no, I'm not one that, that wants rich and, riches and fame. You haven't arrived yet. So 
let's all stay awake and listen to this wisdom, the psalmist's wisdom. Think back a few weeks ago, we, we uh, heard from Pastor Wayne, and he talked about silly love songs that we find uh, both actually in Scripture and in life that help us process and think about how to live and love. Moms and dads, have you ever used some sort of song that you either made up or you found from someone else to help your children learn something? Yes or no? Yes. I think most of us have done that. I want to share a couple of songs with you just to get us thinking. Here's one of my favorites from my childhood. love that song. <laughs> I still sing it today. I can sometimes count beyond 12, but I can always get to 12 because of that song. And young people, those were cutting edge graphics. Okay. That's from Sesame Street a few years ago. So just here's another one. Most of you probably know this one. You can sing along. It's okay. You people in the front row sing. How about this one? Some of you know this one? You don't know this one? Fun stuff. Some of you need to go work in children's ministry and get some work, some more of those. Some learn some of that. Songs can help us learn, all right? And the psalmist here declares his message to the music of a liar. They say in verse 3, if my mouth speaks wisdom, my heart's meditation brings understanding. I turn my ear to a proverb. I explain my riddle with a liar. Now, I'm not sure exactly what the tune, the songs of Korah used, but if you're wondering what a liar is, a type of harp. Here's a picture of, of, of a type of liar. Now, so we know as we get into this, we know we need to pay attention, all right? We need to stay awake. We need to listen to the wisdom of the psalmist in his message. And we also know that helpful songs, uh, songs can be helpful to learning. So keep that in mind for a moment. And as you're listening to this, come up with your own tune in your head, okay? In your head. I don't want to hear that right now. But in your head, it can be your silly voice for the day, Okay. Keep that in your mind. All right, we're going to get to the riddle, the riddle, the psalmist. Beginning verse 5 says, why should I fear in times of trouble? The iniquity of my foes surrounds me. They trust in their wealth and boast of their rich, abundant riches. The writer begins with a riddle, a question describing troublesome times. Why should I fear in times of trouble? This is a dark time of being cheated by others who are wealthy and in power and desire harm for others. You have no idea what that's like, right? In his book entitled The Pioneers, David McCullough tells of the dreams and the hardships and the efforts of those responsible for settling the Northwest Territory in 1788. 
This territory is now Ohio, Indiana, Illinois, Michigan, and Wisconsin. I think this is a great book. Uh, Pastor Wayne actually used a, a, a quote from it uh, not too long ago. I got to read it this summer, and I highly recommend it if you enjoy history. I believe McCullough does a great job highlighting the grit and the determination, the ups and downs that it took for the settlers to leave New England and other places to, to settle uh, this area. And much of McCullough's work here centers around the statement or the, the settlement of Marietta, Ohio. In the book, McCullough uh, at one point recounts that in 1805, Aaron Burr arrived on scene in the territory. McCullough states this. Less than a year earlier, on the morning of July 11th, 1804, Aaron Burr had shot and killed Alexander Hamilton in a duel, and it had been only a matter of months since he ceased to be vice president, all of which was well known in Marietta. It seems that Burr did not have a great reputation. McCullough continues, rumors and fearful speculation about a Burr conspiracy kept growing. The impression among many was that he hoped for hostilities between the United States and Spain along the Louisiana-Mexico border to detach New Orleans from the United States and establish a new independent country. According to McCullough, one of the, the more disconcerting moments to a number of the settlers regarding Burr's visit to Marietta was his time spent with the wealthy couple Harmon and Margaret Blennerhassett. The Blennerhassets were a wealthy Irish immigrant couple who, who bought an island on the Ohio River near Marietta and built a large mansion there. That island is known as Blennerhasset Island. I would like to read a little bit more of McCullough's work to tell you a little bit more of the background of the story. Listen to this. McCullough says, this is as many there were in Marietta, however, and especially among the veterans of the revolution who looked on Burr with considerable suspicion, if not utter contempt. As the murder of Hamilton, one of the heroes of the war, as well as a major stockholder in the Ohio Company. To those like Rufus Putnam and Ebenezer Sprout, as later said, Burr's arrival at Blennerhassett was an evil hour in which he, like Satan in the Eden of old, visited this earthly paradise only to deceive and destroy. After this meeting, uh, McCullough states, says, it appears also that at, at some point in the evening before, Burr had put Fourth to Blennerhassett, the prospect of a takeover of Mexico with Burr as the emperor and Blennerhassett as his ambassador to Great Britain. The ever gullible Blanny had been taken as never before and as the result was all, and, and the result was all Burr could have desired. In a long letter to Burr dated December 21st, 1805, Blennerhassett declared himself ready to pursue a full change in life. He says, I hope, sir, you will not regard it indelicate in me to observe to you how highly I should be honored in being associated with you and any contemplated enterprise you would permit me to participate in. With mail as slow as it was and with Burr ever on the move, he did not respond for more than three months. But in a letter from Washington dated April 15th, 1806, he expressed his utmost pleasure in learning that Blennerhassett was to return to the real world. He congratulated him for giving up his vegetable life for one of activity. Your talents and acquirements seem to have destined you for something more, something more, end quote. Soon after this, Burr and Blennerhassett commissioned 15 large flatboats to be built under the story that President Jefferson himself approved of the expedition that they were claiming they were taking. With speculation rising and Jefferson becoming more and more aware of the potential threat in the West, the president was eventually informed by James Wilkinson, governor of Louisiana Territory, that there was indeed a plot Wilkinson was a seemingly co-conspirator with Burr who decided to snitch on Burr instead. 
During the trial regarding treason for Burr and Blennerhassett, Judge Marshall ruled literally and particularly that since no arms had been taken up, the men could not be convicted of treason by constitutional standards. The men were freed. These incidences are known today as the Burr Conspiracy. Burr finished his life. He spent some time in Europe, apparently still trying to ruffle up some um, trouble against the U.S., and then finally moved back to New York, set up a legal practice, and finished the rest of his days. Blennerhassett died in less opulence than he once had while on the island on the Ohio. Perhaps some of you thought conspiracy theories were only recent conversations in the U.S. history. What's the point? The point is that evil people exist. There are many who will use their power and money to attempt to crush others while chasing more. Like the psalmist declares here in verses 5 and 6, people exist who trust in their wealth and who use it to cause trouble for others. And because it seems at times that, that people like Burr and Blennerhassett go unpunished, the question still hangs, why should I fear them? Because it feels like I should. The sons of Korah answer with a description of the destiny of those trusting in riches and wealth. And beginning in verse 7, say, yet these cannot redeem a person or pay his ransom to God. Since the price of redeeming him is too costly, one should forever stop trying so that he may live forever and not see the pit. The these in verse 7 refer back to wealth and abundant riches of verse 6. Why is it that Jesus made the statement in Mark 10, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God? It's because a rich man, as far as he can see, doesn't need anything, even God. He doesn't see his need and, and can easily fall into trap, the trap thinking he can purchase enough or do enough good deeds to cancel out his sins. The psalmist's reminder here to all is that money cannot ransom one's life. Now, I would guess that most of you listening today would agree with that truth. You understand that. You've studied that before. We know we can't buy life. Yet it's still mind-boggling to me how often we can still try to control our fate with stuff. Let me give you somewhat of a silly example uh, that, that I've seen uh, play out here in different ways around here in North Texas. I've heard parents make statements about trying to help their kids get along by making sure they have their own rooms and their own bathrooms. Sharing is just too hard, so buying a bigger house is the answer to the children's sins of not loving one another. Now, it may be easy for us today to scoff at such an absurd example, but how often do we think in similar ways? I've heard people claim that the government is going to save them from a virus. I've heard people claim that the government is going to save them from their poverty. But nations crumble. And if you're paying attention, there's a lot of nations seem to be crumbling right now. They can't even get their story straight. And they believe laws and mandates are going to save society. Now, there's nothing wrong with a bigger house. And you, as a believer in Jesus Christ, are commanded to follow the laws of your land. Render to Caesar what is Caesar's. But putting one's trust in the government to save them is as foolish as a child becoming nicer simply because he has his own room. To borrow from Pastor Wayne's statement, surely none of us ever think anything similar at times. Or do we? The truth is that money won't buy you love nor life. 
It is also true that our end, all of our end, is the same. Everyone dies. Everyone dies. The psalmist in verse 10 begins, where, for one can see that the wise die and the foolish and stupid also pass away. Then they leave their wealth to others. Their graves are their permanent homes, their dwellings from generation to generation, though they have named estates after them. But despite his assets, mankind will not last. He is like the animals that perish. See, it's obvious to all who will pay attention that both the wise and foolish die. No one's excluded. No matter how bold a man may lift himself up in his accomplishments, his wealth, his whatever pomp and circumstances he touts, he will perish. It will happen. The New Testament, Romans 3.10 says, There is none, no one righteous, not even one. And Romans 6.23, For the wages of sin is death. Whether rich or poor, dumb or wise, all will perish like the animals because of sin. No one will escape death. So how in the world is this supposed to be comforting? What kind of song is this? We must keep reading to understand that the upright are redeemed and will rule. Verse 13, Psalm 49. This is the way of those who are arrogant and of their followers who approve of their words. Selah. Like sheep, they are headed for Sheol. Death will shepherd them. The upright will rule over them in the morning and their form will waste away in Sheol far from the, their lofty abode. But God will redeem me from the power of Sheol for he will take me. The path of those living in self-reliant arrogance is death. What great imagery of death being personified as a shepherd ushering one into destruction. The upright, though, have a different end. Death will still come, but the redeemed shall rule over the foolish. There's a few more verses uh, to help the, uh, understand, for he will take me, what it means to be redeemed. Psalm 17, 15, but I will see your face in righteousness. When I awake, I will be satisfied with your presence. Daniel 12, 1, at that time, Michael, the great prince who stands watch over your people, will rise up. There will be a time of distress such as never has occurred since nations came into being until that time. But at that time, all your people who are found written in the book will escape. Psalm 73, 24, you guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will take me up in glory. Hebrews 9, 15, therefore he, Christ, is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called might receive the promise of the internal, eternal inheritance, inheritance, because a death has taken place for redemption from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. See, this is the reason that that this song brings hope to a chaotic and scary world. The upright will be redeemed. As I was processing the psalm and wrestling through um, what it means and the application, um, I, I wrote a silly song. That's what I did. Um, so I'm going to perhaps try to play and sing this for you. Um, I want you to keep in mind that I'm a very simple-minded man. Don't show those words yet. I'm a very simple-minded man. I spent a lot of time in children's student ministry in the last 20 plus years. So just keep that in mind for a moment, okay? Anybody scared yet? 
I kind of am. This is to the I am a CHR. started yet. We're gonna die, we're gonna die. No matter how much cash we got, you're gonna die. You can buy your life or mine, no matter how big your gold mine. And if you're dumb or if you're wise, you're gonna leave it all behind. We're gonna die, but there's a God. There's a God who will redeem you from your sins He gave his one and only son to offer life to everyone And if you put your trust in eternity, will that be? We're gonna die, but there's a God There's a God who offers you eternal hope So place your faith in Jesus Christ and stop believing all those lies And walk with boldness every day No matter what may come in life, we're gonna die But there's a God there's a God who offers you eternal hope. So place your faith in Jesus Christ and stop believing all those lies and walk with boldness in it. No matter what may come alive. Hey, hey, hey! Thank you. Encore. Yeah. So I have a, I've gotten to sing with the worship team before. And I would like to go back someday. I'm a little scared I might not get to now. <laughs> it's all right. They're awesome. Oh, they don't need me. The reality is that we are going to die. We can't stop that fact. But what God offers is hope. He offers hope and life amid the haunting knowledge that death, death lurks all around. We have a few more verses to cover, but will, will you please bow your heads with me for just a moment? I want to talk, stop for a moment and pause and, and pray. And let me just highlight a couple of things here. Perhaps you are a believer in Jesus. But as you process, if you think about it, you too often are trusting in chariots and horses, riches and wealth to save you from the trouble that may be around you. You get comfortable in your little bubble here and neglect to be thankful that it is the Lord who gives and takes away. Perhaps you are not financially doing well. You're worrying constantly about the next bill coming due while also neglecting to recognize who the true provider really is. Whatever the case may be, I would encourage you to repent and ask the Lord to help you trust in the name of the Lord your God, Jesus. Whatever the situation, money or not, crisis or not, submit to the truth that you are not invincible and rest, rest in his grace. Wonder at his awesomeness. Perhaps you're listening today and you do not know what will happen to you when you die. The answer is clear. God redeems the upright. The problem is that you and I are incapable of becoming upright on our own. But it's, it's not possible. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says, for you are saved by grace through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is God's gift, not from works, so that no one can boast there is nothing you can do to save yourselves. You can't buy heaven with good deeds and saying nice things. Your eternity is determined by faith. You either believe on the Lord Jesus or you do not. Today, your eternity can be secure. No matter how tough life is or who may be trying to destroy you, Jesus offers hope and life and redemption. He went to the cross to pay your death sentence to pay the ransom for your life that no one else is capable of paying to access this eternal life 
Confess through the mouth Jesus is Lord. Believe on the heart in your heart that God raised him from the dead and you will be saved. Lord, thank you for redeeming my soul, for rescuing me from the pit of hell. Help me live boldly and unafraid of what mere man can do to me. Amen. The sons of Korah finished the psalm with this. Verse 16, do not be afraid when a person gets rich. When the wealth of his house increases, for when he dies, he will take nothing at all. His wealth will not follow him down. Though he blesses himself during his lifetime, and you are acclaimed when you do well for yourself, he will go to the generations of his ancestors. They will never see the light. Mankind, with his assets, but without understanding, is like the animals that perish. If you know the Redeemer, this is a recall to not be afraid of those wielding power and control of your life. Derek Kidner makes this comment. He says, notice that there is no promise here that he, one trying to wield power, will not have the upper hand, only the reminder that his glory cannot last. His rewards, such as they are, are faithfully summed up in verse 18. There is nothing more. It may appear that, it may appear that people like Aaron Burr get away with plotting and scheming. Or that terrorists will go unchecked as they gain control of resources to harm others, but their fate is waiting. Their fate is waiting. A.W. Tozer makes this statement in the knowledge of the holy. He says, the man who comes to a right belief about God is relieved of 10,000 temporal problems. For he sees at once that these have to do with matters which at the most cannot concern him for very long. But even if the multiple burdens of time may be lifted from him, the one mighty single burden of eternity begins to press down upon him with a weight more crushing than all the woes of the world piled upon one another. That mighty burden is his obligation to God. It includes an instant and lifelong duty to love God with every power of mind and soul, to obey him perfectly, and to worship him acceptably. And when the man's laboring conscience tells him that he has done none of these things, but has from childhood been guilty of foul revolt against the majesty in the heavens, the inner pressure of self-accusation may become too heavy to bear. The gospel, Tozer says, the gospel can lift this destroying burden from the mind, give beauty for ashes and the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness. But unless the weight of the burden is felt, the gospel can mean nothing to the man. And until he sees a vision of God high and lifted up, there will be no woe and no burden. Low views of God destroy the gospel for all who hold them. End quote. The psalmist helps us have a right view of life and God. Psalm 49 declares that we do not have to be afraid of those who use their riches and power to harm us because their end is sure. Without understanding, they will be condemned to the pit. Justice will prevail. The upright will prevail and thus are able to live boldly right now in wonder of their Redeemer. That's the question. Are you living boldly? Are you living boldly? Are you resting in awe and wonder of your Redeemer, no matter what's going on? The Apostle Paul said this in second, uh, his second letter to the Corinthians, in verse 7 of chapter 4. He says, Now we have this treasure in clay jars, so that this extraordinary power may be from God and not from us. What is that treasure? 
Verse 6, he said, For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of God's glory in the face of Jesus Christ. The only treasure that truly matters is the good news of Jesus. That God has shown the light of knowledge of God's glory in the face of Jesus Christ. If you have trusted in Jesus, you are redeemed. And while your body will die, your life will remain in paradise with Jesus. 2 Corinthians 4, 7-9. Now we have this treasure in clay jars so that this extraordinary power may be from God and not from us. We are afflicted in every way but not crushed. We are perplexed but not in despair. We are persecuted but not abandoned. We are struck down but not destroyed. Listen, all you people. Take heart to what the sons of Korah are declaring and walk in boldness every day, no matter what may come in life. That's the charge. I think I've declared that songs help me think. I think the Lord knows that because he put a lot of psalms in the Bible. So, I would like to sing another song. I did not write this one. This is an, a hymn that is one of my favorites, and it helps me wrestle with these truths and relish in the fact that God loves me and has redeemed me. And this one, I want you to stand up, and you're going to sing with me very loudly to help me out. How great thou art.
God, and you are great, and you are greatly to be praised. What an honor it is to sing of your greatness, to hear my brothers and sisters sing of your greatness. God, thank you for allowing us to be here today to do just that, to declare you are amazing. God, help us to, to wonder at your grace, to wonder at your power, to wonder at your majesty, that we might live boldly because if we know you as your son has redeemed us, our life is secure. Eternity will be fun because you are God and you are good. All God's people said, amen. amen.